Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vivos. This is something we recently invested in for our entire family, and we are absolutely loving it. And here's why. So data shows that the nutrition we receive in utero determines our palate development and how narrow or open our airway and jaw structure are. So a narrow mouth, jaw, and airway increase the chances of needing braces, of getting sleep apnea, breathing difficulties, and much more. But it was pretty much assumed that your jaw structure was set in stone once you were born or for sure after the first couple of years of life. But Vivos has found that not only is this not true, but they've created a non-invasive, non-surgical, easy way of widening the maxilla, the jaw, and the airway. So for our kids, this means that they get to avoid the braces that my husband and I both had. And for my husband, this means that his sleep apnea has disappeared and he stopped snoring, which is a bonus for me. I'll be writing more about this soon, but you can check them out in the meantime at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash vivos, V-I-V-O-S, wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash vivos. This episode is sponsored by Four Sigmatic. You've heard me talk about Four Sigmatic before because I love their coffees, teas, and hot chocolates. Now you can get 15% off any order with the code wellnessmama, but these are not ordinary drinks. They're delicious combinations of coffee, cocoa, and adaptogenic herbs, now with the benefits of chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane for an extra brain boost and clean energy. My longtime favorite is their instant coffee with the benefits of these mushrooms, but lately I've also really been enjoying their caffeine-free blends. Try out all of these delicious drinks at foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama. And make sure to use the code wellnessmama to get 15% off your order. Hi, and welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I'm here today with Dr. Jennifer Stagg, who's the author of Unzip Your Genes. She's a practicing naturopathic physician and is the founder and medical director of Whole Health Wellness Center in Connecticut. She is a sought-after speaker, a medical contributor. She's appeared on a lot of news networks, and I'm excited to have her here today because I get a lot of questions about genetic testing. Um, My audience, you guys are pretty great about knowing, understanding the basics of genes and even epigenetics, and I want to dive a little deeper today. So, well, Dr. Stagg, Welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me. So, like I said, I, my audience has a, a pretty decent, at least basic understanding, kind of of the uh, of genetic testing and that it exists. But I'd love to go make sure, in case anybody doesn't have that understanding, let's start there. So, what is genetic testing, and kind of with what the technology we have right now, what kind of testing are we able to do? Sure. So a lot of people were familiar with genetic testing if they ever had to do some sort of preconception planning in terms of family counseling. So that's kind of the way we view genetic testing for many years. And then um, even more prominent would be people who've had testing for BRCA genes for, you know, risk of breast cancer. Um, So then we're talking about, you know, diseases. But what has really come into the kind of mainstream press is wellness genomics. And um, a lot of that is probably due to the online direct-to-consumer platforms like 23andMe, Ancestry.com. And, you know, I think that that's fantastic. But, you know, it takes some interpretation to figure out what to do with that, how to utilize that properly. And then certainly there are a lot of panels that integrative providers have been using for many years to um, help us better understand and kind of give give some clues about what direction to go with patients 
Um, but now what we have is more so wellness profiles. Um, so that's kind of, that's really what I wrote my book about is this concept of using your genes as, um, I just attended a conference this week and in Seattle, the uh, Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, if anyone's familiar with Dr. Jeff Bland, uh, he had a great quote. He, he said, and I actually wrote it down because I thought it was so great, genes don't tell us who we are, but who we might be. Um, so I thought that that was, you know, really right online with where, where genetic testing is going. Yeah, I so much agree. And it's amazing to me because I even remember, I'm going to date myself here, but being in high school and like they had just sequenced the human genome and this was all kind of an emerging field. And it, in what seems like, at least to me, a relatively short amount of time, we've now gotten to the point where we can do a version of this at home testing, which is incredible. And it's really good. But I think the thing that you said about um, the kind of the raw data that comes, especially with 23andMe, is such a good point. Because when I first did genetic testing, I got this raw data that if you aren't a trained geneticist, makes absolutely no sense unless it's interpreted. And I know there's a lot of different resources out there for interpreting it, and they can sometimes disagree, and there can be some misinformation. So I'd love to um, go a little bit more on this. So what kind of testing is this? I'm assuming that things like 23andMe are not like a full sequencing of the human genome, but just um, a testing. Is it a testing of most common genes, or what are they testing? Yeah, so with 23andMe, they actually are looking at the full complex of SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphism. So you actually have access to all of that data, but when the interpretation, which last spring uh, changed back to what they could do before, where they actually had more broad level interpretation and even uh, looking at risk of various disease states on there. So that information is available. What comes on the 23andMe is a small amount of information relative to everything you've actually been tested for. So then what happens is a practitioner or even, you know, a layperson has access to some of these interpretation software programs. So now you can plop your 23andMe data into one of those interpretation platforms and get more information. Um, so, I mean, as a physician, I will, if someone has done 23andMe, I will use some of that data and use interpretation software to look at things like detoxification potential, methylation pathways. Um, and that's really looking more so for people who are actually uh have disease states or symptomatology conditions that we're trying to um, have some sort of guidance around. But what is really cool is the ability to do these genomic wellness panels. So in this instance, you're basically paying for a test where you're getting interpretation of, you know, 50 to 70 different genes, but they're selected for genes that are actually what we call actionable. So in the the type that I talk about in my book, the wellness panel that I primarily use for, you know, this paradigm shift of like, what can we do to use genes as your greatest opportunity, I guess to say. And so with that, with that information, now we're looking at things like what type of exercise is right for you? What is the ideal diet for you in terms of your macronutrient con uh, content? Um, and then even, you know, what your behavior is around food, nutrient deficiency risk. And then you do have to follow up some of those tests with actual blood tests to look at, you know, uh, uh, what we call metabolic outcomes with, you know, your vitamin, actual vitamin D level, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. And this is so exciting to me because to have watched this kind of evolve over the last decade, just because 
Like for years, we've known from just basic studies the benefits of certain nutrients or certain lifestyle interventions, but they never took into account the personalized aspect. So like magnesium is helpful for a lot of people and a lot of people use Epsom salts, but there are certain genes where people have issues with sulfur. So magnesium sulfate like Epsom salt wouldn't be good for them. And now we actually have the ability to kind of look deeper like this. So I love that you started talking about the kind of things we can find out from it, because certainly no one tries to just do a genetic test so that they have a list of these these SNPs and scientific terms like that would not be beneficial to people. So um, let's go a little deeper on that. What can we find out from this kind of testing? Are we able to extrapolate like what foods are probably better or worse for us or what nutrients we might need more or less of? What are What kind of data are you pulling? Yep. So with the um, panel that I use, uh, first of all, we can figure out your matching diet type. So this isn't, we're not to the point of saying on genetic testing with these types of panels, they haven't been developed yet where I could say like, you should eat broccoli instead of um, squash, for example. So it's not like that. Right now, the data that you can get is your macronutrient balance. So that would be carbohydrate, fat, and protein ratios. So this is very helpful because you may be someone who does better with a Mediterranean-style diet. So when I did my testing, I'm Mediterranean. So that means 35% fat. But it could turn out that you um, genetically match better to a low-fat diet. Then we're talking about 20% fat, which there's a big difference there. And we know from this information that first of all, when you're on a genetically appropriate diet, you um, if weight is an issue and you're looking to lose weight, you're two, you're going to lose two and a half times more weight on that genetic matching diet. But second, what we call a secondary outcome is that you get better cholesterol control. So if cholesterol is an issue, we actually saw on on this study that you had uh, people who did the genetic matching diet had a better LDL level, LDL cholesterol. So what that says is maybe for, so if you matched up to a low fat diet and you're eating a paleo diet and your cholesterol is an issue, then we, you know, and I've seen this in my practice plenty of times that we would swap them into a low fat diet and we get to see, we really do see better cholesterol control. So this is the whole issue here, which you, you highlighted is that it really comes down to personalized medicine and many, it, for many aspects, certainly obviously smoking is bad. <laughs> we can, we can, make a blanket statement about that, but we can't really make blanket statements in a lot of areas with nutrigenomics. So a low fat diet may really be right for you. And you could figure that out from genetic testing. That makes perfect sense. And I know like there's um, some emerging research that's not out there yet. And I don't think it's fully available to the consumer, but I know they're testing, being able to look at like RNA output from the gut and match that with genetic testing to see like how they match up and what's actually being expressed, which leads me to my next question, which is let's talk about epigenetics. So genes are super important. And I think you have a good way of explaining this from your book. Um, but I think people kind of sometimes worry that their genes are their destiny. And if like their you know mom got breast cancer and their grandmother got breast cancer and they have the gene for breast cancer, that they're going to get breast cancer. But even in those situations, there's people with the genes who don't. And that's where epigenetics comes in. So let's talk about that. First of all, can you explain what epigenetics means? 
Yeah, so epigenetics, that term basically, and your, there's what we call your genome. So that's kind of your DNA code. And then the epigenome is what we kind of say is above your code. So your DNA code is basically a series of letters. The epigenome is um, what we describe as marks on your DNA. So this is where, you know, I'm, I'm sure your listeners have heard plenty probably about methylation. And so there are these methylation pathways, but when we're talking about epigenetics, there are uh, the genome gets can get methylated in areas, and what that does is it can mostly turns on genes, but it also could turn them off. So here's the epigenetic potential. When you have these marks on your genes, and, and methylation is only one of them. There's also, you know, things like histone modification. There are a lot of technical terms, but essentially these are kind of chemical marks that go on your DNA, which affect the expression of your genes. And so this is how, um, for example, you can have, this is probably my favorite example, is that you can have diabetes in your family, and you can actually get tested and determine do you have some of these specific genes that put you at a higher risk of diabetes so yes you you know you have to watch what you're doing uh, in terms of your diet but what we can tell even more specifically is that for patients who have certain genes that predispose them to diabetes if they eat a Mediterranean diet so this all comes down to genetic testing and if they have these specific genes they can actually completely negate that risk. So this is where my, you know, you could say, oh, my uh, diabetes is in my family. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, actually, that's not true. So you could actually eat a Mediterranean diet if you have these specific genes and you have the same risk as the rest of the population. That's really cool. And I think probably going to bring a lot of hope for a lot of people. And like I said, my audience is a lot of them are pretty well versed in this. And I got some specific questions related to different um, different types of mutations. So if you don't mind, I'd love to go like just a little bit deeper and kind of analyze some of those. And you mentioned methylation. So that would kind of be the first one I'd love to delve into. So just kind of a brief overview on what um, like an MTHFR mutation or a methylation-based mutation is and like what that might mean from a health perspective. Yeah. So there are a number of different... Um, so from for example, from 23andMe, you can actually pull out a whole methylation report. So you can look at the various vitamins, these cofactors that are used in um, what are enzymatic reactions uh, to provide what are called methyl donors. And these methyl donors is exactly what I was talking about. Those are key to impacting how the um, how your genes get expressed. So the most famous one, obviously, is the MTHFR, um, and, and that's, you know, a lot of people call it a mutation, and it technically isn't. It's a, it's a SNP, so it's a single nucleotide polymorphism. So it's a variant on, uh, of the allele. And for people who have an MTHFR SNP, um, that first of all, they could either have one or two copies of it. If it, they have two copies, it is uh, it affects the enzyme even more so. And then there are actually various different types of MTHFR mutations. So there's not just one. It does matter. You kind of have to look at it and look, is it the 1298? Is it 677? And then this, so, so then the solution that, you know, trying to keep this simplified, the solution, what happens here is that you're not converting, you know, folate to methylfolate. So basically people would take an active folate, an activated form of folate that already has the methyl group on there. But what 
where and so you just you know you just take this methylated folate and you think okay i fixed all my problems and for some people you know i i found this to be really effective for people who have suffered from lifelong depression or anxiety this really does play quite a bit into mood disorders but also crosses over into many other conditions but what we find for people who practice this a lot and even people who've tried this on their own that sometimes that doesn't correct it and for some people it can actually make it worse so this is where you have to look at all the other things going on so then you're looking at things like uh, the comp snip so the comt and whether they need support there mtrr so it does kind of spiral and get really complex um so there's so there's really you know there's an art to that yeah for sure and another one that i know came up on mine and even my husband's and i get questions about is like the vdr i don't know if they're actually specific mutations but the vdr issue so can you talk about those as well yeah so um the the um issue there is that Sometimes we have to do vitamin D testing that uh, we're looking at 125 hydroxy or 25 hydroxy, but I, I have that as well. And so during my, I have three kids. So then during my second pregnancy, I actually did, the first one I didn't do any vitamin D testing because that was 13 years ago. <laughs> um, the second one, I was really adamant about doing vitamin D testing and I needed a lot of vitamin D. This is when I realized that um, just, you know, my levels were quite low and I hadn't had genetic testing at that point. And then once I had the genetic testing done, I, um, I realized, okay, well, this is where this comes from. And then in terms of supplementation, I just have to take higher doses. And so in clinical practice, we find that some people can get by and their levels, as long as we're, we're testing them with the right tests, their levels um, seem to be falling in optimal range. But for other people, they need, may need to be taking 5,000, 10,000 units a day. Uh, it can be really difficult to get their vitamin D levels up. Definitely. I've noticed that for both of us because we do test vitamin D pretty frequently. And for me, I could take all the vitamin D supplementally that I wanted, but it, if I don't get some sun exposure as well, it just really seems to not, I don't seem to assimilate it very well. So I think that's really valuable data for a lot of people to know that and just to be aware of it. Because we, I mean, how many conditions are related to vitamin D deficiency? And we know that there's the research there. And so I think it's really helpful to be able to look at that on a personalized level. Um, another one that I'd love to go deeper on, if you uh, have any knowledge on this, is the MAO-A or the MAO-A. So that's another one that showed up for, for both of us. And I'm curious because I've seen some conflicting research on that. So I'm curious if you have um, seen anything on that or if you've ever dealt with people who have that one as well. Yeah, so I don't do as much work there. If I do a, um, uh, sometimes I'll do a panel for people who have more complex um, mood disorder issues. And there, I mean, when I've looked at the research there, it seems to be really limited about what to do about those. MAO, A and B, um, those are tricky to deal with. So I don't have a ton of experience with those. Um, and it doesn't seem like a lot of people really do. So we're kind of guessing there as opposed to some of the other SNPs. That makes sense. And so when we're talking also to circle back on detox pathways and methylation, um, a lot of the research I've seen is that there, there are some easy lifestyle interventions, and you may be able to just talk about some general lifestyle interventions that seem to kind of help across the board with detox pathways. And I know things like leafy greens are one that um, is often brought up, especially for methylation. But are you have you seen any kind of um, commonalities across the board, things that tend to help for people with those kind of specific issues? 
Yeah, so when it comes to detox, there are a lot of things that you can find out from the detoxification panel. So you could find out, for example, like there's one a CYP um, 1B1. I think I'm saying that correctly. There's so many of them to try to keep them straight. That one actually um, can raise your risk of having breast cancer. So it impacts how the um, your estrogen gets metabolized. So you have these kind of negative estrogen metabolites for hydroxy um, estradiol. And so you're basically impacting the conversion pathways where you go through phase one and phase two detoxification. So, the, so for example, when you do genetic testing there, if you found out that you had that particular issue, then we could specifically target and give someone a DIM supplement, for example, and that can be really key there. So um, using genetic testing when it comes to detoxification is another way we can personalize it even further because, yes, we know that, you know, certain um, we can make broad statements about detoxification, but for some people, it's more of an issue of imbalance with phase one and phase two. And then we can even find um, like people who have. So if you've had toxicity screens and found, for example, that you had arsenic as um, one of the um, toxicants on your panel, it may, then you start going and looking, well, where am I getting exposed to arsenic? And of course, we've all heard about arsenic um, in rice and rice is a bio um, concentrator of arsenic. And then chicken. So you hear, you know, you, you hear about these sources of arsenic, but then why do some people come up that that their arsenic levels are not high, and some people, other people do, and they seemingly, you know, pretty similar diet? Well, it turns out that there's also a sniff for arsenic that could impair your ability to clear it. So now we start to get, you know, go back to kind of like the roots of naturopathic medicine. Yes, you have a group of people with the same exposures. But genetics is at play, and it can impact your ability to clear it. So someone else doesn't get sick, but one person does, and it, and it does come down to genes there. That's a great explanation. Thank you. And in your book, so you kind of walk people through a whole program um, on basically how to do the best we can to ensure that our genes are going to express in a healthy way. So like like we mentioned earlier, our genes are not necessarily our destiny and it's whether they're turned on or off. So can you take us through your work on that and what you found kind of things we can do proactively to help make sure our genes are going to express in a healthy way? So, um, you know, a lot of what we talked about is in that category that we call nutrigenomics. So we're looking at diet. But then we have to think more holistically because diet is not the entire piece of the equation. So I often, you know, when I talk about this, I have patients that come in, they're seemingly doing everything right. They're eating a great diet, they're exercising, but um, what, what the elephant in the room is, is how are they dealing with stress? And we know that stress impacts epigenetic expression. So what happens there is that when you're under stress, either you know acute stress or low-grade chronic stress, cortisol is released and cortisol affects those methylation patterns along the epigenome. So how your uh, DNA gets tagged. And so it is so important to be dealing with stress in a, you know, in whatever way works for you, whether that's meditation, if it's prayer, uh, practicing a positive 
positive mental attitude. Um, sleep is also critical. So we're just going back to the basics, you know, the foundations of health. And, and as a naturopath, that's what we always talk about. We're not only focused in one area. We look big picture and we try to, you know, we get to know our patients. We have, you know, in-depth discussions about what's going on in their family life. They have a mother who's sick. Like all of this stuff matters. It, it's not just diet alone, although diet is really important. Um, this is, you know, really... 60% of the equation. So we say probably 30% is genes, 60% is behavior, diet, you know, lifestyle, and 10%, I guess at this point is, is healthcare, uh, access to healthcare in terms of what really is your determinants of, uh, of stress. The other thing, or determinants of, of health, the other thing that is really key that I think a lot of people don't talk about so much is connection and community. So we know that having this kind of sense of purpose in your life, which is also uh, um, a connection with the world around you, does actually impact your health outcomes. And this also comes back to um, what's happening with gene expression. I'm so glad you brought that up because this is something I've researched a lot lately and just had conversations with people about because if you look at the last even just 30 to 40 years, but especially the last 100 years, there's been a drastic change in community and how it works in our world because it used to be like my grandmother's generation, they grew up close to family, like you had built-in community all the time. And we've largely moved away from that in today's world. And if anything, our community has shifted to an online version, which they're still studying, but it seems like the data is pretty clear that an online relationship and, you know, a Facebook friendship does not affect your health in the same way, of course, as an in-person friendship and spending time with someone. So I love that you brought this up and I'd love to go a little bit deeper um, on more of exactly how community affects our health, but also do you have any suggestions for kind of trying to create that? Because I feel like in today's world, you really have to make an effort um, because we've all just kind of moved away from that so much. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of talk about that. Um, and there's a couple of different ways that I see that and it's certainly playing out my in clinical practice. So, um, you know, you see people who just identify themselves by, you know, that have so think about someone who is approaching retirement. And they've defined themselves by what their career has been, or even um, like a mom. So I'm a mom, and you know that's you know a large part of how I define myself. But when your parent, when your kids move out, I see this. So I have moms who have been, been through this, and their kids move out, and their friends are working, you know, working outside the house. <laughs> I say that in air quotes. They're working outside the house. Friends say, you know, well, what are you going to do with your life now? And they're often really, they can be really stuck in it can create such um, turmoil for them. So the first thing I would say is start to think about what really makes you happy. And it doesn't have to be that you have to develop some elaborate um, nonprofit, I'm going to do this, you know, start to think about what really makes you happy. And so I have a um, 65 year old woman in my practice and the discussion we we talked about well what were some of the things that you used to do and she did um you know she used to um participate in her kids plays and she would make help with costume one of her children um was um very theatrical so she really helped in that area and so we ended up figuring out okay you're gonna get she started getting involved in local community theater so really again this is kind of a personalized thing but she felt like she was giving back 
to to her community and feeling like she's filled up inside and has some sense of purpose. So again, when I say personalized, it's going to vary. So what creates um, sense of purpose for one person will vary from another. But also thinking about your day of like, how am I connecting? And another thing that place where we go, you know, w that we're doing poorly, I would say, and I'm guilty of this in families is not spending enough quality time together as a family, like that whole process of sitting down to dinner together, <laughs> um, you know, um, is is part of part of feeling connected to to your community which can be your family having friends over you know all all of these interactions um, just like our body is a, a interconnectedness of interactions between I'll bring up your microbiome and your human um, genes also we see that uh, playing out with you know our greater um, earth community I love that. That's such a good point about you don't necessarily have to just look in your neighborhood, how someone found that in their local community theater. I think that's a great thing. And I think such a good encouragement, especially to moms, because we, if anyone, they say like in today's world, motherhood can be kind of a lonely thing sometimes because you are so busy with the children and everything else involved in running a household that it can be hard to make community. But I love that. It doesn't have to be that difficult. And even just those little connections can make such a big difference. And we know that. It's crazy. You don't have to have the research to realize that because it's instinctive to us. But I think it's a good reminder. And I love that you talk about that in your book and that you bring that up because I think that needs to be said more and more. This podcast is brought to you by Vivos. This is something we recently invested in for our entire family, and we are absolutely loving it. And here's why. So data shows that the nutrition we receive in utero determines our palate development and how narrow or open our airway and jaw structure are. So a narrow mouth, jaw, and airway increase the chances of needing braces, of getting sleep apnea, breathing difficulties, and much more. But it was pretty much assumed that your jaw structure was set in stone once you were born or for sure after the first couple of years of life. But Vivos has found that not only is this not true, but they've created a non-invasive, non-surgical, easy way of widening the maxilla, the jaw, and the airway. So for our kids, this means that they get to avoid the braces that my husband and I both had. And for my husband, this means that his sleep apnea has disappeared and he stopped snoring, which is a bonus for me. I'll be writing more about this soon, but you can check them out in the meantime at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash vivos, V-I-V-O-S, wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash vivos. This episode is sponsored by Four Sigmatic. You've heard me talk about Four Sigmatic before because I love their coffees, teas, and hot chocolates. Now you can get 15% off any order with the code wellnessmama, but these are not ordinary drinks. They're delicious combinations of coffee, cocoa, and adaptogenic herbs, now with the benefits of chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane for an extra brain boost and clean energy. My longtime favorite is their instant coffee with the benefits of these mushrooms, but lately I've also really been enjoying their caffeine-free blends. Try out all of these delicious drinks at foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G. M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama and make sure to use the code wellnessmama to get 15% off your order. Um, and also I love that you brought up motherhood because to me like this, all the new genetic data is both 
uh, kind of a warning and an encouragement to moms. So we know that there's a lot of, like what you do during pregnancy can, for instance, have an impact on the baby's future health. So there's, if you are pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, understanding these things can really help you kind of optimize your pregnancy. But I also found it was an encouragement because since our genes are not our destiny, those of us who kind of learned as we went and maybe had children or some of our children before we figured this out, it's not that they're set in stone that they aren't going to have a good life. But like, can you talk about that specifically? Maybe a mom who is considering pregnancy and is in that preconception planning phase, things that you can do at that stage to also help improve your child's genetic future? Yeah. So, yeah. So this is a really um, um, important area of research. And actually, there are some colleagues of mine who have a family practice and um, actually practice. Uh, what, so they have family practice and also deliver babies. And in the, they actually did a whole outcome study looking at the effect of nutrition and outcomes for um, small and large gestational birth babies for preterm birth. And they looked in their clinical practice at what they were doing. And of course, in their practice, they're practicing functional medicine. They're, um, you know, um, defining uh, specific personalized diets for um, the mother to be, and they there they when they showed their data, people were almost crying in the room. So this is a group of physicians that were so taken aback by their data. They essentially had uh, compared to the general population in the United States, they essentially had you know no preterm births, no no small for gestational age or large for gestational age babies in their practice just because they really focused on nutrition and even used nutrigenomics to their advantage. Um, so it was amazing to see that. The other thing we know is that yes, like preconception does matter. So your health before you even get pregnant impacts the um, um, genome for the baby. And what a lot of people don't talk about is that, you know, there's so much focus on mom. There's actually a lot of issue that we see with dad. And so sperm, the DNA in sperm um, is more variable to environmental influences because there's continued production versus like our eggs are basically our eggs at birth. Um, and, and with a mom, we're just more talking about the, the kind of like metabolic environment. But for DNA, it really does matter. So I was actually interviewed for the New York Post on this about the trend. And is it just, you know, being trendy of uh, mom and dad doing something like a detox or cleaning up their diet and their environment before they actually attempt to conceive? And is there any validation for that? And of course, yes, the data is there. Um, um, it really is important what you do preconception. But to your point, yes, like if, you know, you happen to get pregnant and it was uh, unexpected and you hadn't had the chance to be, you know, have be on an elaborate program, a preconception program, we do know that it matters what you do during pregnancy. And it does matter even after the baby is born. Um, there are critical time frames. So those early developmental years for the baby are also critical. Um, and um, it matters what you feed them. It matters how much stress they're perceiving. Um, so, uh, you know, there are all of these time points that, um, again, we see this dynamic between environment and genes and how um, modifiable it is. 
Exactly. And and that, I think that's just such the important point to drive home. It's wonderful that we have all this research, especially this new research that's only emerged in the last few years. And we should absolutely be grateful for it and use it as a tool. But those of us who had kids before this emerged, we should never, I never want to present anything that's going to be like a source of guilt for moms or that makes them look back and be like, oh no, I didn't do this right because I didn't know. Um, and I think that's what's great about genetics. It's like if you are in that stage of life and you can modify first, it's wonderful, but it also is so encouraging that it's not set in stone. And we're now finding so many things we can do at every stage of life. Even those of us now, like me as an adult, um, they didn't have this research where my mom was pregnant with me. But thanks to this new research now, I can use it to modify my life as an adult. So I think the message of it is encouragement. Um, but since we're talking about generations, I'd like to go into kind of a, a subset of this topic that I believe you know quite a bit about. And so we've talked about how your stress level and how your environment can affect your genes on a very physical level. And so you have written a little bit about how memories even can be passed through genetics, which sounds a little bit like a crazy concept if you've never heard it before. So can you kind of give us an overview of that and how that works? Yep. So um, we basically know this. So this is something that's called um, translational, transgenerational genetics. And so what we've learned from past um, history is that um, there was the Dutch famine. And so women who were pregnant during that time frame, they, depending on when they were pregnant and how much, you know, basically starvation they incurred during a specific stage of pregnancy, outcomes in their children and then grandchildren have been tracked. And so we can actually, that level of what we would call a trauma is passed on through multiple generations. And so this is the same thing as um, seen in Holocaust survivors. So we used to think that children from Holocaust survivors, that they had some various outcomes that were different in terms of health outcomes of risk of cardiovascular disease, you know, chronic illness, um, that um, those risks were higher. And it was thought it was just the result of the environment that they grew up in. So their parents having suffered such a traumatic life that then they basically raise their children differently. And what we have learned is that their DNA was actually marked in a way. So we did talk about marks and some of some of these DNA marks with epigenetics that they are variable. Um, But what we know is that some of these marks are so kind of uh, that they end up almost being permanent from a a trauma like that. So it also, you know, I speculate about slavery in the United States and also wonder whether we're going to see some information coming out on that because I have not found any yet. But if you think about African-American populations as physicians, we know that they're at higher risk of hypertension. They're at higher risk of cardiovascular disease, of diabetes. And uh, my theory is that their DNA was marked in a way from... um, past generations that predisposes them. That's so fascinating. And it's so amazing that our research is now at this level that we can look so deeply at things that, I mean, even a few decades ago would have been not even conceivable. I love that they're able to do this now. And as we get close to the end of our time, I'd love to hear your thoughts as a physician and what you kind of see as the potential future of this kind of research and ways that we may be able to apply this even more in the future as we learn more and more. 
Yeah, so um, I just, it's a great time that we actually got a chance to talk today, but I returned from a conference called the uh, Precision Lifestyle Medicine Institute. It's the annual conference. It's Jeff Bland's Institute, um, where we just talked all about this. All the presentations were sort of geared to what does the future look like? And I can say the future looks amazing. Uh, the transformation of our healthcare system that we're going to see on so many levels. So this is not just something that is just kind of in the ether and, you know, a few integrative medicine doctors are working on this and it's just like piecemeal. There are major medical institutions, hospital systems and networks, the second biggest network in the United States who is working on transforming healthcare in this way to foresee a future where babies basically before <laughs> before they're born they would have their entire genome sequenced and helping to you know the research is to, the purpose of that is so we can catch things quickly and even document what sort of markers happen as we transition to illness so we don't even get to the point of illness so we can start to see these things happening much more earlier and intervene so for more serious medical issues that there could be the opportunity to intervene much more quickly and never see that conversion to a disease state, which sounds, you know, like science fiction, but this is what people are working on. Um, and then ultimately, what I also know is that the healthcare system is going to transform, transform and be more one of wellness and not just uh, rushing to treat, you know, waiting to just treat a disease that the, the goal is to, you know, change that paradigm. And that is happening right in front of our eyes right now, uh, which is exciting. Change the paradigm to understanding what promotes wellness instead of disease. And, um, you know, I know that that's, you know, entirely what, what you're talking about. Like, what can we do to just stay healthy? Let's not talk about, okay, once you get this disease and what type of pharmaceutical can you take for it? Let's not even get there in the first place. And it really, you know, looks very positive that that's the direction we're going in. I agree. And I'm so glad that you said transformational medicine, because I was also at a conference recently, and there was an interesting exchange between two people who would both probably be considered like kind of visionaries in the healthcare field. And one of them said, like, you know, the problem is we're dealing with a broken system. And the other one said, no, 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 it's we're not at all. The system is doing exactly what the system was designed to do. The problem is, life has changed and we need a new system. We need to transform the system because the current medical system is brilliant for what it was designed for, which is trauma and infectious disease. That's when a lot of modern medicine and the research really came to light was in those areas. And that's what, if you go to an emergency room in the US and you have you know, a broken leg or you're bleeding or they are excellent, incredibly good at that. Um, but now with all this new research, we need to kind of transform certain aspects of medicine to really take into account this new information and that things like chronic disease are dealt with in a much different way than infectious disease. And that things like genes can give us data before, like you said, before there's ever a problem. And so I love that there are people like you um, out there kind of pioneering this field and trying to take into account all of this and make it practical for those of us who are trying to figure out our own health. So I love that. That's such a great point. 
Yeah, so I mean, exactly. You you really said it very well there that, that you know, we're not going to see emergency medicine go away. And uh, that's not the goal here. Or even, you know, you know, there needs to be interventional medicine. And that's that kind of 10% of healthcare. If something goes really wrong, we have trained people who can take care of you and do an excellent job with that. So, um, but it, it is, it's chronic healthcare, um, chronic uh, disease um, in that way, that, that tr- system. That's where where we're not doing a good job, and and luckily that really is changing rapidly. Yeah, it's super exciting. So a question I love to ask, uh, kind of a close to the wrap up of an episode, is if someone is just like starting to understand your area, which would be so um, genetics or this type of medicine. What are three things that tend to be just like good starting points? Like if someone is just getting into natural health or just trying to understand their own health, what are three things that you can kind of recommend across the board for them to do? Yeah. So I would say, um, so number one, I guess I kind of said it at the beginning that your genes are really your greatest opportunity. So think about genes as what we call your genetic potential um, and that your lifestyle matters. So I want people to understand and feel the power in that, that living holistically, reducing your exposure to toxins, which does, you know, we didn't even get on that topic too much, but that does impact your genetic expression. So the more clean you can live, the lower, the better you can manage stress. We can't make stress go away. I mean, we live in a modern society, but we can do a lot to make our body not as reactive to stressors. So that's probably number one. Number two, I would say, is that it's really interesting that the expression of your genes really vary with seasons is what we're finding in the research. And even more, we can even see that expression varies with time of day. So it's really fascinating that the recent Nobel Prize went to a group that had studies, studied the circadian clock and genes associated with that. Um, so even this concept of like people get sick in the winter, oh, it's because we're, you know, indoors more. There's actually some research that shows that that might just be a change in genetics. And this, there's some research that looks at that with respect to weight as well, that we actually can get thinner in the summer because our genetics related to fat burning metabolism have something to do with that. And we just perceive that, oh, that's just activity and I'm I'm maybe eating a little bit lighter, but there's actually some some genetic seasonal effects going on there. So that's some kind of interesting um, um, developments that we found. Third, I would say that probably a really good practical tip is what we're finding is, uh, and I'm going to give it because uh, my my background is in nutritional biochemistry. So I love to talk, I do love to talk about nutrition. The diversity of plants in your diet is probably, uh, turns out to be probably more important than the total amount of plants that you eat. So here's something that is actionable. So when you look at your daily diet, and you're looking at like, what does my plate look like? You know, we say like, okay, make sure, you know, it's at least half vegetables. Now we we can say, go a little bit further. So I would like people to understand that I want that to be like a mix of foods. So if you're eating berries, for example, you're probably better off eating a cup of mixed berries than a cup and a half of all the same type. And so easy ways to get more of these plant compounds in your diet, to get more of what I call, what we call diversity, 
Use herbs in meals, use spices. Those are rich in these phytochemicals and use mixes of greens. So even when you're eating a salad, don't just eat romaine lettuce or just spinach. But like get a mix, like get some baby kale, all of these little signals not only impact our human genome, it impacts our microbiome in uh, the genes of our bacteria. And we have about 20,000 human genes, but we have, you know, estimates are basically two to 20 million microbial genes in our body. Um, and I'm sure you've probably done some um, podcasts on the microbiome, but this this has that interplay between both our human and microbial genes. So diversity, diversity, diversity. That's what I would end with. <laughs> I love that. I think that's a huge point and such an actionable one. And that's it, like you said in the research, if you look at what people ate 100 years ago and the diversity of their food sources compared to today and like, isn't it like most Americans eat primarily five foods and most of them are like soy, corn, and wheat, and just the difference. And I think that's a great one that anybody can start with right now. And I love that you talk about that. And I want to make sure people can find you. Of course, you have your awesome book, Unzip Your Jeans, but I'd love for you to tell them where to find you online as well. Sure. So I'm probably most active on Facebook right now. So, and that's Dr. at Dr. Jennifer Stagg. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and I do have a website, drstag.com, and we're doing some revisions there and that's going to be, uh, have a lot more content really soon. Wonderful. And all those links, if you're listening and can't write them down, they'll be in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. And um, Dr. Stag, thanks so much for being here. You have some such great information on this. I'll make sure all those links are there so people can find you. But thank you for sharing with us. Thanks so much, Katie. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I will see you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.